Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Boring app of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome back to the On Air podcast. Um, we took a break last week and obviously we missed you very much but we had to watch the tennis um, and <laughs> no offence but we made the right decision because it was a great game. It was, it was really good. But we are back. So it's summer, Royals <laughs> aren't doing anything, uh, they're all off on beach holidays and those that are doing things they're not, they're, I'm sure they're fascinating and worthwhile and incredible, but they're also not things that we can talk about for 45 minutes. So um, we've been digging into what we could be doing and, and you know, into our list of things. And um, we've decided to do a deep dive into one of the royal families. And I think, so I can't remember whether it came from my mum, whether it came from a different listener or both. I think it might have been both. Um, but we are very aware of the fact that a lot of people who listen to the podcast might only be fans of the British royal family. But it does mean that, you know, occasionally there'll be something like one of us will say, oh, yeah, it's just like this situation that happened with Prince Jiminy Bob of uh, <laughs> Born Swayzia. And then um, we'll move on. And then there are people sitting at home like, who is Prince Jiminy Bob? Because everyone's sitting at home now going, who is Prince Jiminy Bob? Prince Jiminy Bob, yeah. Um, we, so we decided that we or they asked us, these people, if we could do um, some episodes where we kind of d- dive into who are the important people to know, what are sort of the important facts to know about a certain royal family, so that, you know, if we're talking about that royal family in an episode in the future, they can refer back and kind of understand who everybody is and how they all fit together. Um, and so we thought we would start with Luxembourg. So... Luxembourg is not a monarchy in the same way that most other monarchies are. It is a grand duchy. Historically, it's a title where, like, you were re- your country's really important for some reason because it's very mu- uh, rich or well positioned or something like that. But it's also teeny teeny weeny, so they couldn't really they didn't feel like they could call you a king, so they just made up this other alternative thing. So I think Grand Duke is like equivalent to a king, pretty much, but it just means you've got like two square meters of yeah now a grand duchy is always helpful so luxembourg is a grand duchy um but it used to just be your normal duchy of luxembourg and then in 1443 um the then duchess of luxembourg elizabeth um made a treaty with the duke of burgundy philip iii of france and she was like look i've got no heirs my son died my other child is unknown um when I die, you can have Luxembourg. Friendly, lovely. And that was really kind. And then Philip III, Duke of Burgundy, was like, sounds great, but I don't want to wait that long. So he launched an attack two years later um, and then took over completely before she died in 1453. Um, So (laughs) he invaded. And then it was obviously then the dukedom of Luxembourg and Burgundy. And it carried on in the Philip III's line until 1477 when his grandson, Archduke Maximilian I of Austria, was in charge, and it became a fiefdom of the Burgundian Netherlands. Um, So it just means like it was part of the Netherlands, but it was this Burgundian part, like the Duke of Burgundy. And in 1549, I can only assume some future grandchild (laughs) of Maximilian I, combined Luxembourg with lots of different places, France of... Luxembourg, of Belgium, of the Netherlands, and all these little tiny lands all together. 
until 1794 <laughs> when the French had a revolution. One of Yay. the <laughs> revolution. And they were like, okay, no more dukes. Now the French are in charge. Um, and a solid 20 years later, so 1814, William of Orange, who was the king of the Netherlands or the heir to the king of the Netherlands at that point, um, was given Luxembourg by whoever was in charge of France at that time. My head says one of the Napoleons. Not sure which one. So in 1815, Luxembourg became the Grand Duchy. This is my, where my notes start. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, my notes are just like, Luxembourg was passed around. Then 1815 with the Congress of Vienna, which we, we talk about the Congress of Vienna surprisingly often. I know, it comes up a lot. Yeah, so I think in like Mr. Kensington, the episode about the Greek royal family and a few others, we've kind of talked about this big shift in the 19th century. So when Napoleon was kind of, defeat or when that lineage was defeated suddenly there was this massive empire that they'd had that was like what do we do with it and so all the people who existed still in Europe so you know the, the various uh, powers Britain and other places kind of all got together in Vienna in 1815 and uh, just carved up all these countries into different places um, and their, their biggest consideration really was like the balance of power so we don't want any one individual to get too much power it wasn't really about you know, what countries speak, what areas speak the same languages or which areas have historically been connected to each other and, you know, will have cultural links. It was more just like, well, if we give them this city, then I've, I, I as a British person don't feel comfortable. I think France has too much power <laughs> if we give them this city. So yeah, the, the, the Congress of Vienna, I think he ended up with the Netherlands in a personal union, which we talked about in a couple of, when, when did we talk about personal unions? Oh, in the friendship episode, the episode all about friends. I talked about the concept of a personal union. So the King of the Netherlands was King of, or was Grand Duke of um, Luxembourg, but it was its own country. I jumped okay. to 1890. Um, so then at that point, um, they hit a problem. King William III was reaching, you know, the end of his life. He's very old at this point. And he only had a daughter. He didn't have any sons. And the line of succession and the rules about succession for the Grand Duchy of the Luxembourg and the Kingdom of the Netherlands were very slightly different. Yes, so basically in his heir to the throne was his daughter, Wilhelmina, and she became queen of the Netherlands when her father died, no problem. But Luxembourg didn't allow any female monarchs at the time. They also didn't allow anyone who was descended from a woman, so they had very strict uh, succession rules. And so Wilhelmina couldn't become uh, Grand Duchess of Luxembourg. And so there was... I mean, it's complicated. They had these house rules to decide what would happen in a situation like this. But long story short, the throne ended up going to the only remaining heir of the House of Nassau. I think it's Nassau. Nassau. Yes. Nassau? Yeah. Um, in America, they have Nassau. It's like Nassau County. I, I hear that in crime shows a lot. But um, I'm going to say Nassau. Uh, anyway, it went to the remain the, the only remaining heir of the House of Nassau, who was Adolf or Adolphe, who had been Duke of Nassau, but had lost that in the 1815. Congress of Vienna thing he'd lost that yeah so so yeah and then that's um how it passed on to the House of Nassau um and away from and sort of split off I mean it had been its own country but it hadn't always been treated that way by the King of the Netherlands um and with this it sort of officially became like completely its own thing there was no more personal union from 1890 onwards I do think it's funny because um this is 1890 and then if you look at the 20th century, so the 1900s, for 52 of those 100 years, Luxembourg had a female monarch. 
yeah girl power in Luxembourg yeah so they obviously all that problem but I I do think it's interesting so like obviously nobody needs to know the in-depth history of the of Luxembourg to be able to follow the Luxembourg royal family now and I also don't know the ins and outs of the history of Luxembourg I literally had about 400 years of history in one sentence in my notes (laughs) um but I do think it's interesting I think sometimes it's helpful to understand a bit about the history of a country just to understand where they are now and it's also quite interesting because it's got quite a long lineage it's not like Japan or Britain long but it's also not you know one of those more modern monarchies where it's kind of just like arisen occasionally and or it's gone for like a hundred Spain it has yeah Spain thing of Spain here it has been steadily there for 700 years just in various forms so it does have quite a rich history that you know when I think of Luxembourg I don't necessarily think about it as this like ancient traditional little country but it is yeah but that leads us to the modern family the modern family the royal family of the modern era the grand duke of luxembourg today is called henri uh henri was born in 1955 he became heir to the throne in 1964 in 1981 he married maria Teresa mestre y batista um i am so sorry to everyone who speaks spanish in the world um who was born to a wealthy Cuban family. Uh, They met in Geneva, and so they got married in 1981. And then um, he took over the throne in um, 2000 when his father, Grand Duke Jean, abdicated after he'd essentially served as kind of like a regent almost for about two years before that because his father wasn't well. But um, that's when he sort of took over the throne. Up until 2000, I would say he was a fairly conventional royal. He went to Sandhurst, which they all went to. Everyone goes to Sandhurst to study. <laughs> uh, he did political science, which is a thing that a lot of other royals study because, um, uh, you know, it's relevant to their future job. The only thing that was like a bit spicy was that he married a non-European. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was like when you I was reading through it, I had like my my honorary notes, which were kind of like he had siblings yeah. and went to school. <laughs> and then you, get, you got to Maria Teresa and it was like, Oh, she was born in Cuba and she moved to New York and she was she was bilingual and then she became a Swiss citizen at some point. And I was like, wow. And that's all before she even meets Henri. And actually, up until that point, even like her childhood was significantly more interesting than Henri's. No offence to Henri. I'm sure he had a lovely time, but was not very interesting. Even when I was sort of searching his like siblings, I was like, wow, all of these were more interesting. Like all of his siblings were significantly more interesting and had more inter- and still have had more interesting lives than he had. Which on one hand is like you want the the one that becomes the monarch of your country to be the boring one. But on the other hand, I'd feel quite like, hey, how come you will get a fun life? Also, like, yes, as, as somebody who lives in a monarchy, I totally agree with you. You want the boring one. Also, we run a podcast. So <laughs> and I, mean, I like the exciting ones. Um and I it actually it surprised me to see that. Henri was so conventional before he became Grand Duke because he has, I would say he has been anything but <laughs> since he took over. It was literally like he was hiding his real personality for that entire time. And then in the year 2000, he was like, oh, finally, I can be me. <laughs> um, I would say if I was explaining who Henri and Maria Theresa were to any other person who didn't know much about them, I would focus on the controversies. And so I think there's kind of two areas of controversy um, that are connected, but they are their own thing. And the first I've got is his controversies, which generally tend to revolve around the fact that he doesn't really seem to like this whole democracy thing. <laughs> that is true. He's yeah. not a big fan of it. 
I looked at different articles and they said different dates for this. So I'm not exactly sure whether it happened in 2001 or 2004, but shortly after he became Grand Duke, he opened the new session in Parliament. And you might be thinking, well, they do that in the UK all the time. That's why is that a big deal? Um, and technically, you know, according to what was written down, it was absolutely fine for him to be able to do that. But it hadn't been done by a Grand Duke in person for over 100 years. You know, we've talked about this before in the past, you know, with lots of monarchies, there's kind of there's what's written down and then there's what's been done for 600 years to the point that it holds the weight of a law, even if it isn't a law or it isn't written down, we all understand it. And so there are lots of things that, um, you know, the queen or the king now could do a lot of things, but it would kick off and there'd be probably a civil war if he did. So um, he doesn't do them. And I think that we, you could see very early in, in Henri's reign that his view was, well, if I can do it, I'm going to, whether you think it's a good idea for me to do that or not. So it really upset a lot of people right from the jump. It carried on. So it would, wouldn't have been so bad if it had just been like first year nerves or first few years, you know, trying to throw your way around, but then you realize, okay, no, this isn't the right thing to do. I'll change it. Um, because in the, I think the most famous story about Henri probably to, you know, the one that mo a lot of people know, even if they don't know much about, much about the Luxembourg Royals is in 2008, when he refused to sign laws that were being introduced in Luxembourg, which kind of relaxed um, the laws around euthanasia, so made it more possible. And he is a very committed Roman Catholic, and um, he thought that euthanasia was against his faith, and so he refused to sign the laws, which essentially throws the country into crisis because you can't do anything without the laws. It's the same as it is in the UK. You can't do anything without the laws being signed off by the head of state. They, this had happened before and they'd found a way around it where they'd like temporarily paused the Grand Duke's role or the Grand, it was Grand Duchess, the Duchess at the time. They paused the role and then they just do it anyway and then they they get reinstated. But obviously that's not something that is very effective and in a modern monarchy is a bit of a strange thing to do. So in response to this crisis, the, the Luxembourg government changed the whole constitution. <laughs> um, and uh, whereas before it had said that the monarch kind of, they have to... Uh, promulgate I think there's a word so they have to like say this is the law I agree with it and then they have to sign it as well now they just have to sign it so whether he agrees with it or not he has to sign the laws um he but he doesn't have to sort of formally agree with them so um yeah basically it was quite a big restriction of his power and so it, it was quite a significant thing that in 2008 a monarch was saying no I won't do this because it's against my faith no matter what the democracy and uh, of the country or what the people of the country think I won't do this and it had very serious consequences for his power yeah I do quite like that he was like oh yeah I'm not going to do this because I don't like it and the response was okay you just don't get to make you're not going to allow to do it anymore yeah <laughs> Like, I just want to know at what, at what point, at any point, did it go, oh, I should not have done that. I should have just gone fine. But it did make me think, like, if it was going to happen in another country, like, what they would do. And I think that would be really, it would just be, now Luxembourg have done that, people just go, okay, fine, you just don't get to make decisions, you just have to yeah. sign things. Yeah. It's one of those things where in other countries, you know, there's a lot of people who go like, oh, I have issues with, I don't know, the Queen because she signed this law. Mm. And it's one of those things where there is a belief, rightly or wrongly, that the, the monarch kind of agrees with all the laws they sign. Yeah. So I I can understand almost that from 
Henri's point of view as someone who was very committed to his faith that he was like I don't want to sign something I'm against but Mm -hmm. then it goes against his role as the monarch yeah so if you if the monarch himself is not going to be able to fulfill that role it makes sense to change the job description definitely definitely after 2008 it was kind of his wife who took over um as the controversial one uh yeah uh Grand Duchess Maria Theresa so I think Maria Theresa's issues really started in 2002 so they'd only been on the throne for a couple of years and Maria Theresa summoned the press to the palace and got them all together and cried and told them through tears that her mother-in-law Grand Duchess Josephine Charlotte had bullied her and that there'd been kind of a xenophobic connotations to some of the bullying like referring to her as the little Cuban and things like that and that she wanted them to treat her nicely because she'd been bullied and Henri was like oh yeah please treat my wife nicely and Josephine Charlotte was still alive (laughs) so was her husband Grand Duke Jean and I just think like Megan who like you know we talk about the, (laughs) the the Oprah interview as being and it was a huge thing obviously but almost 20 years earlier Maria Theresa was already setting the template it's just astonishing this is why I thought they were both dead earlier than they were because I didn't think Maria Theresa would do that before they died but no she was like yeah she bullied me this woman is still alive and still you know lives in our houses and comes to events with us you know is still it bullied me I yeah I like, I knew I remember when Grand Duke Grand Duke Jean died I mean I did still think he was the Grand Duke at the time but I thought Josephine Charlotte had died in like 1982 maybe like yeah. ages ago like way way before I was born I mean I imagine she was maybe just me Charlotte was absolutely horrible but I probably wouldn't have told the press that oh. well she maybe was you know in the next door castle when I was gonna have to see her for Christmas dinner like yeah, I might yeah. have been a bit more quiet about it yeah it's still a thing that people bring up a lot and I, I think it does relate to some of the stuff that happened later which I think is interesting so the other big controversy she did she, she, things went fairly quiet after that as far as I know then we get into the 2010s and then there were the bullying allegations that were against Maria Theresa not from Maria Theresa um and so episode 29 which gosh feels like a long time ago doesn't it um we talked about the bullying allegations in more detail in that episode so you can go back and listen to it but basically there was a lot of things that happened but in 2014 an ex-maid took the um the royal household to an employment tribunal she said she'd been wrongly um let go and alleged that essentially it was a toxic work environment and she had all these allegations uh, particularly against Maria Theresa uh in 2015 the marshal of the court just a very senior position left his job and that sparked an exodus and there was tons of people who left the palace at that point uh 2016 there were even more allegations people going to the press saying that there was a toxic work environment at the royal household specifically again that it sort of came from um Maria Theresa now I knew all of these things I knew these stories um but when I was reading it I I hadn't realized that Maria Theresa responded to these stories in the most childish way um that I think anyone could. So 2016, there were all these stories that were coming out about her being a terrible boss and being really toxic and everything. And the the, the government were starting to pay attention and were kind of like, oh, we need to have more insight. We need to know what's going on because this isn't great. And so in response, she refused to meet the Romanian head of state and went to Switzerland instead on holiday. Um, and it was because a, a favourite staff member of hers had been forced to quit by the government because um, she'd hidden a criminal record that she had. And Maria Theresa wasn't very happy about that. So, yeah, she went to Switzerland. She was supposed to be meeting the Romanian head of state to the point that the president of Romania had to rearrange their visit, 
like it was last minute she just refused to do it um and then in November of 2017 she also refused to go on a visit to Japan and her daughter had to fill in for her um so it seems like not only was she getting all of these accusations that were against her but she was responding to them in such a childish petty way where she was like well if you if you're gonna say this about me then I'm just not gonna bother doing my job and like I hadn't known any of that um so yeah um but it, it really hit a, hit a sort of uh or culminated in 2020 with the Warringa report so the government at this point you know there were so many accusations that were coming out they couldn't ignore it anymore and also as we've seen with what happened with Henri they had been gradually trying to uh limit the powers that the the, the monarchy have anyway um and so they appointed this guy Waringo to do an investigation into the royal family and into the the accusations about a toxic work environment and he his report essentially backed up those accusations it was quite tame it could have been worse because it didn't actually say like this person said that on this date Maria Theresa screamed in their face but it did say essentially it was a toxic work environment everybody was terrified and the reason was Maria Theresa um so it was pretty unequivocal in that that she is not a easy person to work with um and I think what's interesting is to kind of tie it back to the 2002 thing is that the response was Grand Duke Henri issuing an incredibly angry statement which we talked about in episode 29 a bit more but it was kind of like I am on my wife's husband's uh, wife's uh, brother's deathbed and can't believe I'm having to deal with this which is you know so emotionally manipulative um <laughs> and um you know basically was saying that the accusations against her had been because she was a victim of sexism xenophobia um and i think so it was it was linking back to the sort of foundations that she tried to lay in 2002 of like any criticism or any difficult experience maria Theresa goes through is a result of um somebody else's bigotry and look i don't know maybe josephine charlotte was horrible to maria Theresa, and that was true and i do think that there were some conversations around this issue that were sort of xenophobic of like you know people were saying she must have done it before the Waringo report came out saying she must have done it she must be a terrible boss because she's Cuban so she's got that Latin temper it's like that that no let's not let's not do that but she also was a not a very nice person so two things can be true at once and Henri was kind of like well you have to you know you have to forgive Maria Teresa or ignore these accusations because of sexism, sexism and xenophobia when in reality it should have been she's terrible but we don't have to talk about her in that way but yeah I think that's the, the kind of overriding thing about Maria Theresa and you know since then the government did sort of take a more of a role so like appointments to the household have to be approved by them and all sorts of things so the the monarchy have very little power even over their own household now um and there's still even so there's been accusations that there's been tension and that she's um, snapped at staff and that there have been reports to the government about her behavior and so it hasn't it's it's died down to a degree in that 2000 and two, uh, in 2020 it was massive and it's not as massive as it was but it hasn't completely gone away it doesn't seem like you know she immediately had a change of heart and everything's fine now So I think all of these controversies have led to the question that's been coming up over the last few years that I've seen quite a lot of, will he abdicate? And so his father abdicated, his grandmother also abdicated. So there is a history of abdication in the Luxembourg royal family, as there is in a few others like um, the Netherlands. 
but I mean, he didn't abdicate in 2008. He didn't abdicate in 2002. He didn't, you know, I think that it's very unlikely. That, and obviously, you know, this was three years ago and he hasn't abdicated since. So it's very unlikely that he's going to do it now. I think that he will abdicate eventually. You know, that this kind of leads me nicely into the next section, which is the next group of people. I don't think he will abdicate for a little bit because the next group, their family is quite young. And I feel like he wouldn't want to put them in that position. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah. So um, that does kind of, you know, if he was to abdicate, who would be taking over from him? So now we move on to uh, his eldest son, uh, Luxembourg William, as we've called him in lots of previous episodes. <laughs> his name is Guillaume. Um, yeah, yeah, but we're terrible at pronouncing it. So Guillaume, hereditary Grand Duke Guillaume and hereditary Grand Duchess Stephanie, his wife, so and their family. So Guillaume, born in 1981, uh, first child of Henri and Maria Theresa. He um, studied in Luxembourg and Switzerland as a child, uh, various schools, and then followed his father into um, Sandhurst. Um, after Sandhurst, he studied at a few different places, far too many for me to be able to write them all down. I knew the, I wrote the ones I knew, uh, Durham, Brunel, and then there was somewhere in Switzerland, somewhere in France. And then he did a bunch of internships at like Belgian companies. Um, he did one at the uh, a bank. He did one at, um, not the Belgian companies, Luxembourg companies. Uh, he did one at a bank. He did one at the Spanish branch of a Luxembourg company because he's fluent in Spanish because his mother's obviously Cuban. Um, and I think uh, his path in life, actually, it surprised me. The person the person it most reminded me of was Crown Princess Victoria. Yeah, actually. Um, and that, that's what really surprised me because he studied for a very, very long time. Like it wasn't like a four year degree and I'm done. He, he I'm, It was something like 10 years or something between him starting and him getting a degree. And he went to like four different universities and he did internships in between um, and uh Victoria had a very similar path where you know she left and started studying when she was like 20 uh, 21 or something but she didn't actually get a degree until 2009 um and she did internships in between and did you know internships in different countries like she went to Brazil for a bit and you know uh, France and so they had very similar trajectories I think um they also have very similar areas of interest uh like he's on the he's been involved in the Special Olympics and Victoria's really interested in the Paralympics yeah I think I'd always kind of viewed Guillaume probably in a very similar way that I viewed William for a long time which was like he was a very plain canvas like I didn't know anything about him he had I liked his wife I you know I liked his children he didn't really do much in terms of like controversy and he was just kind of there doing the job and then you know I was research you know when I was researching him and I'd because I, I did obviously his mother and father first and I put down for them like their little problems section and I kind of assumed I'd have to do it for all of them and he didn't really have any problems which ruined my plan very quickly <laughs> <laughs> but I like you know like like you said he was he educated in such a broad range of sort of subjects as well like he started with history and politics which is the most royal thing you can do and then philosophy and anthropology which is a lot more intellectual and then back to political science and letters um much later on, like post-marriage, he did a post-grad for the Defence, um, Royal College of Defence Science. So, you know, he's incredibly educated. He's incredibly military-based, like he's worked his way up ranks in the military. And like you said, he has a lot of these kind of like interests that he works for. And that's something that I almost like, because I'm so aware of the 
Brits and the Swedes and their areas of interest, I kind of forget other royals have them too. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't, they don't talk about them so much. Even after this research, I couldn't tell you what Henri likes. Um, no, no idea. Everything about him, I think about the controversy. And I think if I had five minutes to describe him to someone, that's what I'd focus on. Whereas with Guillaume, actually, when I think about him, after I think about the family and sort of his kids and things, my first thought is him in a scouting uniform. Because I know he yeah, likes scout. scouts. So, you know, if you're unproblematic, people will actually pay attention to the work that you do. <laughs> <laughs> a lesson for you all in lesson there. for you all yeah i i've i debated whether or not to talk about this but he, the biggest story that was around guillaume sort of for quite a while before he got married and things was that he uh, the rumors that he was gay it happens to so many young men um royal men like prince edward over in the uk king felipe in um or king philippe in belgium had the same things um it always happens to men who are like not ultra masculine or like like art <laughs> it's like to the public it seems who are still seem to be stuck in like the 1980s apparently if a man smiles and likes art and isn't mean to people that is enough of a reason to think that they must be gay and it's just like I, I just I don't know I find that so strange um that this was such a story that dominated around him for such a long time just because he's nice like what does that say about what straight men think about themselves and it's it's so strange as well because he did date Pia Haraldson. Her mother was married to Queen Sonia of Norway's nephew. Fun nice fact. Link there. Nice little link there. Uh, they met at Crown Prince Hakon's wedding and they dated for about a year and a half. Also off topic, but Pia, um, so she I think she got involved in some racist things. So I'm not gonna say she's like a good person. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure, but she I do know her because she went to Crown Prince, um, she went to Princess Ingrid Alexandra's baptism in like a pink satin mini dress and a um handbag and necklace that were hello kitty <laughs> grown woman grown woman in a satin pink can you imagine somebody showing up to like prince george's baptism in a hello kitty matching set so they didn't last <laughs> can you imagine if the grand maria Theresa, if he had married pierre harrelson she would have gone into the middle of the biggest town square in luxembourg and just screamed like she would have <laughs> such a meltdown <laughs> i bet she was there in her you know when they started dating like please please yeah. i'll do anything please no and then, yeah, it was Not... a year and a half it wasn't short like um but yeah so he yeah he he dated he did date women for a while so um but i think when he did get married uh he ended up marrying um stephanie D delanoy who um is a countess who is from a Belgian noble family. And so he is one of the few royals in Europe from his generation who married an aristocrat. The, one of the others is King Philippe of Belgium. And both of them have had this, this kind of conversation around them, this really spiteful conversation about like, they're secretly gay and they they were, it was an arranged marriage and that's why they both married aristocrats. As if like, they couldn't have just met them. Like he'd known Stephanie for years before they got married. I just, it's just, um, yeah but so that's something that I think when I first was learning about the Luxembourg royal family all I knew about was like this malicious kind of gossip that um he'd been set up with Stephanie and they didn't actually love each other and it was all an arranged marriage to hide the fact that he was gay um which obviously now looking back is ridiculous yeah I think I didn't really know about the Luxembourg royal family until after he was married but I remember 
I mean, I the rumours were still carried on. Obviously, I was married. I heard the rumours. But then I always remember the first time I looked at that interview he gave to before he got engaged to Stephanie. And he was like, oh, I'm in a little relationship with a dear miss. And I just want to hope and see and make sure she's ready before we make any big decisions. And it's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. And he is so clearly in love in that interview. I mean, if he's not, he isn't, but, you know, he clearly is. If he wasn't, he was a phenomenal actor because it is, like, the sweetest thing. And it's my favourite little thing he's ever said. I'm like, oh, my dear miss. But yes, um, so Stephanie was the youngest of eight children of Count Philippe uh, Delanoy and his wife, Alex. She was born in Belgium in 1984. They first met, apparently, at a social event in Germany in 2004, uh, Stephanie and Guillaume, but they didn't begin dating until 2009, and then they married in 2012. And, you know, everything Pia Haraldson would have represented that Maria Theresa would have hated, Stephanie was the exact opposite. So she was an aristocrat. She was from a Catholic family. She's multilingual in her own right. She speaks like five languages or something. They all do. Um, so she was, I mean, literally, you could not have crafted a better person to be Guillaume's wife. Yeah, I mean, she's like all future Luxembourg members we are going to come across, was incredibly intelligent. You know, she studied in Brussels obviously in Belgium, and then she studied in Moscow, she studied Russian language and literature, and then German philosophy in, in back in Belgium, and then she did a master's degree in German, and I mean, I'm fairly intelligent, but I don't think I could study a degree in another language, like, I, like, she studied essentially, like, four, three degrees and a master's, and, like, there were three different languages involved, like, that's incredible, and obviously she did the internships, and, um, she's kind of she did a lot of art history later on um and it really it was really interesting to look at her and sort of Guillaume's past before they married because they kind of married each other like without the military side of things they both did like lots of different sort of mini degrees for a long time then they did almost like a postgrad. they did internships and like you said they're like a perfect balance for each other they just matched all the way yeah definitely um and I think you know when I'm thinking about the biggest talking points around these two because they're so non-controversial the biggest talking points still to this day are them, them as a couple there are still some people who refuse to kind of let this idea go but um I think like they wait they didn't have children for seven years after their marriage um and most of the time when I was talking about Stephanie and Guillaume on my blog or whatever, it was people going like, oh, is something wrong with Stephanie? And that was always what it was. It was always like, I mean, fertility comes from two people. There are two people involved. <laughs> so why is it always Stephanie that has to have a problem with her? But also they were young enough, you know, when they got married. They weren't like married at 45 and had a ticking clock. You know, they, they had plenty of time. And they won, you know, she came from a family of eight children. He came from a family of uh, five children. So maybe they both just wanted to be together for a bit, <laughs> like not have anyone else around. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe they did struggle to conceive, but that's their business. And it's not helpful to us. It's, it probably is just distressing. I mean, if you look at the example in um, Japan, uh, there was, you know, the pressure that was put on um, Empress Masako to conceive a baby as part of what contributed to her mental illness. So we should just like let them be themselves it's you know and do what they want to do and they did have children in the end but it was just for you know they were because they were so non-controversial and were not doing anything like massively dramatic people tried to create some drama out of the fact that they didn't have children for so long and so for for years it was just me trying to kind of 
or and, and the rest of us who followed them kind of trying to be like actually no can we just not talk about their fertility every five minutes and like just let them be themselves there were so many royals who married around that same kind of 2010 period and I you know for all of them there was like and why aren't they pregnant yet and you know most of them got yeah. pregnant within a year or two but there was still that immediate like why aren't they pregnant why why haven't they had a baby they must be pregnant right now and I think I can only imagine that for Stephanie and Guillaume who I who were either trying to have a baby and struggling or happily not having a baby yet were in Luxembourg being like would people just stop talking about it because <laughs> it's got literally either they're happy and they don't care what everyone's going on about because it doesn't matter to them or it was a real problem and they probably were not going on about it all the time and anyway they did eventually have two sons so they had prince charles in 2020 and uh francois in march of this year so now i think now that people can't talk about her fertility every five minutes the biggest talking point around them is how adorable the children are uh so my mum will be delighted because she's a massive fan of prince charles of luxembourg um and his chubby cheeks every time he goes out anywhere i take a fo- i sort of sh- save the photographs and send them to my mum and i'm like guess who was out today <laughs> um and they take him out everywhere they take them to take charles to everything and he's become well known as sort of the um the royal of choice other than prince william of of the UK, um, <laughs> the royal of choice for elderly women, um, because he gets taken to nursing homes a lot and gets to just toddle around talking to old people, and they absolutely love him. I, I, I've paid more attention to them over the last few years, and my overall impression of the two of them is that they really don't get enough credit. Um, they are both highly accomplished people. Guillaume has spent an incredibly long time preparing to be Grand Duke and you know he's done all these internships and he's learned about politics and he's been in the military and his career path is very similar to Victoria's who I always hold up as being the example of a royal who is really preparing for her future job so I can't really say that Guillaume isn't he's doing a really good job and during Covid in particular they came out of it as, alongside the Belgians, they came out of it as handling it so well, uh, because as soon as things started to open up, they did take Charles to these nursing homes to go and meet old people who'd been cut off from their friends and family and the little ones that they knew for a really long time. And like, it just, it brightened people's day so much. And they've carried that on, taking him everywhere and anywhere that's appropriate. He goes along and he learned, you know, and I just, I think that, you know, for a couple that a few years ago, most people didn't pay much attention to, they really don't get enough credit for how well they do their jobs. But as well, something that also reminds me of Victoria is they both have a real love of Luxembourg. Yes. And yeah. I think Stephanie um, renounced her Belgian citizenship just after she was married. And she said in an interview something like, Belgium is where I am from. It's where, you know, my roots are. But my future, a bit like Mary said when she was in Denmark, she's like, my root, my future is in Luxembourg and I'm excited to be Luxembourg Luxembourgish in the future I would have felt quite nervous about going in and meeting particularly meeting Maria Theresa yeah in case like all the rumors were true and she was quite sort of intense and scary but they do just seem to be in their like happy little bubble of now four the next people we move on to is the next oldest Prince Felix Prince Felix was born in 1984 Um, He had a very similar trajectory to his older brother. So, you know, studying in various places, studying in Switzerland and in Luxembourg, then went to Sandhurst. He did have to drop out due to a knee injury. And then he did a a degree in bioethics from a university in Italy from 2009 to 2013. 2012, 
he married Claire Lademacher, Lademacher, like Schumacher. Yeah, yeah, like Schumacher. Yeah. Um, who they had gone to school together. Actually, they'd known each other for a very long time, but they didn't start dating until much later. Um, so yeah, so Claire um, was from a wealthy German family, and when I say wealthy, I don't <laughs> I don't mean Middleton wealthy. Claire's father is worth at least five hundred million pounds. He's royal level wealthy. Oh yeah, she's she's wealthy. Uh, so she came from a very wealthy background, German background. She had worked at Condé Nast in uh, Munich and in New York, so she was also very cultured, a bit like Maria Theresa. Then she also went into bioethics. I don't know exactly the timing of this. Like, did they meet each other again when they went? To, you know, I don't know. Fun fact about Claire is that she is the most educated royal woman in Europe. She has her undergrads, but she also has a PhD in organ donation ethics. She worked for UNESCO on some of their bioethics work. Uh, she's been a visiting scholar and professor at universities, including Georgetown, which even I know is a big university <laughs> in the US. Their main job is that they run a vineyard in southern France, which is owned by, has been owned by Claire's family for a very long time. They also set up a clothing and lifestyle brand called Young Empire, which I've never liked that name. I think if you're from a royal family, you should avoid calling anything empire. Um, <laughs> but I've always found them to be a really weird combination of things. Like they they studied and they were really interested in bioethics and she still does occasionally, you know, I think it was like five years ago was her last visiting professorship or something. But they also run a vineyard. I can only imagine that running the vineyard takes absolutely no effort and essentially yeah. they live in a vineyard <laughs> yeah. and make money from it while they write about organ donation in their spare time. I can only imagine that's what happens. It must be. They haven't lived in Luxembourg together really ever. They've always lived in France or around but they come back a lot for visits. You always see them around. They are like the epitome of like a cool aunt and a cool uncle like you're there and you've got your boring family and then you're like oh yeah uncle felix and auntie clara coming around from their vineyard (laughs) (laughs) bringing (laughs) crates of wine (laughs) just so cool yeah 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 so they have um two children amalia was born in 2014 and liam who's born in uh, 2016 and actually i should have mentioned this at the beginning but this is the reason we're doing luxembourg today instead of any of the other royal families we could have done is because it's recently been announced that they are expecting their third child which i think uh, was a surprise to me um because it's been seven years since the last baby that they had there's not a huge amount to say about them because they're other than the fact that they are incredibly smart and rich and live a great life and both very attractive the only thing that I could kind of find was sort of there's never been anything to indicate like there is a family rivalry or anything like that there has never been any sort of for a family that is so dysfunctional (laughs) externally there doesn't seem to have been that much problem with like Stephanie and Claire and Maria Theresa or anything like that there's no evidence of that but I know that the German press in particular perhaps because Claire was German did try quite hard to create a rivalry between Stephanie and um Claire and about how um, Claire was so much better than Stephanie and for quite a long time one of the narratives that came out was that Claire was better than Stephanie because she had been able to have children and Stephanie hadn't which is a horrific thing to claim that's obviously just tabloid nonsense there doesn't seem to be any tension between them in reality they seem to get on very very well there was the possibility that maybe they wouldn't have children for a long time there was people thinking like oh it's possible that they won't have kids, Felix will take over, and then eventually Amalia will be the Grand Duchess. So 
considering they don't live in Luxembourg and they do almost no engagements, there was quite a lot of focus on the family, particularly Amalia, for quite a long time, because there was always in the back of people's heads this idea that, oh, maybe Amalia will be Grand Duchess one day. I remember when it was announced that Stephanie was pregnant, and my first thought was, yeah. no, Grand Duchess Amalia, future <laughs> <laughs> Grand Duchess. You know, and I also think it's relaxed them as a family because we saw a lot of Claire and Felix and Amalia when she was little. And then kind of period around the time they moved to Germany, around 2018, when you almost didn't see them at all. And it almost felt like, I don't know whether they were removing themselves from the press or they were just kind of like hiding or just wanted to get away because there was so much pressure being put on Amalia to be the future Grand Duchess of Luxembourg. We've kind of only started seeing them more since Charles has been born. So the pressure's gone and they're like, oh, we're back being the cool aunt and uncle again. We are not the future Grand Duke and Duchess. <laughs> we're fine. I'm glad that it's kind of all sorted now and like they can have, they can, can be completely free and they know that Amalia is going to be able to spend the rest of her life kind of living as, you know, she happens to be a princess, but she'll be all, an all, a fairly ordinary person. You know, I think having that, clarity is probably helpful yeah and I think you know I think I like you said I was very surprised when they announced pregnancy number three but I also think you know it will be their first baby without the kind of cloud of being the heir sort of hanging over them um and I think Liam it was such an unusual name I'm absolutely fascinated to see where they're going to go with baby number three like it's going to be like princess heaven of like, like where are we going with it it sounds better in French when they say it. It's like Liam, Liam, Liam. Sounds much better than in English. But I always associate it with Oasis and Liam Gallagher. So, <laughs> if anyone else was having a, like a future baby, this is the name I'm most intrigued where it would go. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and then we go on to Prince Louis. Louis, I would say, is kind of the closest that the Luxembourg royal family have to a black sheep of the family. Um, yes. His route is slightly different. So he was dyslexic. So he's. He, he did get a degree in the end, but his focus was kind of not on academia in quite the same way that his older brothers were. Um, he did go into the military as a teenager. He's also now he's a consultant for an HR firm. Just that's not an interesting thing about him, but you might want to know that. I don't know. You know, we could talk about all the university, all the schools he went to and all that. But I would say his life has been defined by the women he dated. Which is a dream for any man. <laughs> so the military is where he met Tessie Anthony. They were 19 and Tessie got pregnant out of wedlock and had a son Gabriel before they got married this is a Catholic royal family as we talked about Henri was so dedicated and committed to his interpretation of his faith that he lost all of his power as a monarch which is <laughs> an out of wedlock pregnancy for a member of a Catholic royal family that's very traditional was absolutely massive I wish I'd been here the drama because uh, even out of wedlock pregnancies in general in royal families even ones that are not quite as strictly religious are controversial they did announce the pregnancy because they kind of had to you could kind of see their displeasure slightly because Henri apparently didn't announce that the baby had actually been born and obviously people knew the baby had been born because there was a baby there was a baby but <laughs> <laughs> they were just like surprise yeah, yeah. Um, he did marry Tessie in uh, 2006 and in order to marry her, he gave up his rights to um, his place in the line of succession. And Tessie and, the, and his son, uh, Gabriel, had no titles. They had a second son, Noah, in 2007. Um, and in 2009, on National Day, the family were given titles by Henri. So obviously, at this point, he had, I guess, forgiven them <laughs> for their industry. <laughs> I do think that it was um, it was kind of a practical thing because they'd had one son out of wedlock. If 
Tessie had been treated the same way any other royal would be when she married in and she was given a title then their future children would have a title and a place in the line of succession but their first child wouldn't and so I do think it probably wasn't just like we're punishing you because you got pregnant out of wedlock it probably was something that was done to kind of make it more equal so that we're treating them all the same way it's just that initially they decided we're going to treat them all as less than (laughs) and then later down the line they were like okay no we'll treat you all as royals it was really funny because even if you looked at pictures of like the three at that point royal weddings you had stephanie and claire marrying in cathedrals really sad like couture tessie and louis essentially had like a village church (laughs) (laughs) they really didn't do very much in terms of working for luxembourg they did did what was expected of them like national day and stuff like that but that was kind of it and they actually lived in london for quite a while so they moved there in the early 2010s as far as i can tell um, lived there until they divorced in 2019 and the divorce oh it was like popcorn it was oh it was I was I'm, I did get to live through this I didn't get to live through there <laughs> um them having the out of wedlock baby but I got the drama of the divorce we this is an episode in itself really but Tessie like repeatedly trashed Louis on social media there were some documents that came out during the divorce uh from their courts appearances in court where she basically said that she felt like she was owed more money than she was being given and she should be allowed to keep her title. Basically, it came out through these documents that Louis was broke. Um, she was like, that's ridiculous. His parents are ma- massively wealthy. Um, and she accused them of like trying to hide it. And so it was incredibly dramatic. I mean, Louis was very quiet. He doesn't, he, he didn't really say much at all. Yeah, Louis was just like, I'm very sad we separated and I want to do what's best for the children. And um, which is the most royal answer of all time. It's like the basic answer. And then Tessie obviously was on social media making snide comments about her ex-mother-in-law. Yeah. And it was during, you know, this period that Grand Duke Jean died and she was like, the only person in the royal yeah, family who was ever nice to, me. to me. Yeah. And it was so dramatic. And I just it was, it felt like it was like the fall of from grace for tessie and i yeah. you know whenever we do our eventual royal exes episode it's going to be cracking <laughs> but also dramatic and it's really interesting almost like to look back on those like two or three years now because tessie every now and then is like picture of her and louis like me and my boys and i'm like no you hated each other so much for like three years i remember being really shocked when they announced the divorce because and they and she said that they'd been separated for a while because they'd like po- they'd gone to halloween together they dressed up as stormtroopers and they were separated at that time they seemed on some levels like super healthy and then every so often she'd post this picture and be like, oh, this just came up and reminded me of when Louis stood me up on our anniversary. I took this photograph when I was waiting for him to turn up and he didn't bother. I was like, this is, you put this on so, this is social, you've got a public social media account and you were a princess. So loads of people follow you. Uh, then she would be like, oh no, we get on really, really well. And I've told him that I'm getting remarried and I'm told him, you know, he's hold, here's him holding my new baby that I've had with my new husband. And it's like, it, it's so strange. And I think, you know, I, on one hand, I do feel sorry for Louis because he's so different than the rest of his family. And I can only imagine growing up with Guillaume and Felix as your big brothers, and they are just the most accomplished people. And then they married incredibly accomplished wives. You must have felt, you know, quite sort of smaller parts and just felt a bit, and he's, he's spoken about being dyslexic and how hard he found it at school and how you know he felt quite lonely because he didn't understand why he couldn't get things everyone else did yeah but then I feel like he's really kind of he has done that kind of work for himself like he's got himself a master's yeah yeah in psychological studies like he I think 
almost being out of the limelight despite yeah. everyone's attempts to bring him back into it it's probably done in the world of good yeah the other big woman in his life um so in episode 12 again so long ago now um we covered his relationship with his fiance fiance scarlett lauren whose last name i can't pronounce sergey yeah sergey um so Scarlett Lauren, Lauren was from a fairly well-to-do family, French predominantly. Um, they were like lawyers and things. The big They got engaged um, in 2021, uh, Louis and Scarlett Lauren. And we were all like, yay, he's getting remarried. This is great. And then some stories started to come out. Scarlett Lauren's uh, is related to Marine Le Pen, who is the lead or was the leader of the far right party, the National Front in um, France. And her father had also been a part of the party. So basically her family were connected to some far right parties. And that, there's no implication that Scarlett Lauren has, holds those views. But what had been like, oh, Louis getting married. Isn't that nice? It'll be somebody after all the drama with Tessie, he'll have his own person now. And then immediately drama. In 2022, um, instead of getting news about when they were going to have their wedding and where it was going to happen, they called off the engagement. They kind of said like they wanted different things or something like that. It's still a mystery, really, what exactly happened with them. To call it off within like 12 months is quite significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, how different did you get in 12 months? The the next sibling and the only daughter of Henri and Maria Theresa is Princess Alexandra, who is four years younger than Louis. I did not write down the year she was born. But I know 19, she's 1991. Now. 1991. Oh, it's so close to us. Um, she, um, like her brothers, she kind of went to school in Luxembourg. She grew up. She went to study in the US. She studied in Paris. She studied in Ireland. She has degrees and an MA, like all good Luxembourg girls seem to have. Hers is in interreligious studies and she did it in Ireland which is the is the place to go for that kind of thing I think yeah, yeah. and her uh, thesis was in conflict resolution mm-hmm. and I was yeah. like yeah perfect place yeah, perfect yeah. Setting. um she then did lots she's fluent in six languages she then did lots of work at the UN she interned as a journalist in the Middle East conflict zones she volunteers to help refugees in her spare time She's also the only one of the sort of children, apart from Guillaume, who was a work, working royal in Marks. She's the only one who actively works for the family, uh, attends dinners and hosts people when they come to visit. Yeah, then um, she announced her engagement and got married in April of this year to Nicholas, who I know nothing about. Nope, Nicholas Baggery. But, but I'm actually pleased now. He didn't wave. And now he didn't he wave. wave. Yeah, uh, his waving was very awkward at the royal wedding. That's the only thing I remember about it. Yeah, I think um, so. That there's less information about the younger kids, but um, Alexandra is interesting, I guess, in that she. I don't know whether this is because she's the only girl. I don't really know, but um, she's the second youngest of five, and yet, as Grace said, she's the only one who's sort of a, a regular working royal on an active basis, and actually she seems to have picked up a lot of the slack from Maria Theresa. So like the event that Maria Theresa cancelled when she was supposed to go to Japan, it was Alexandra who filled in for her. Alexandra's almost like the unofficial first lady of Luxembourg. 
she yeah she does very much fill that role and I think you can see it in pictures where Maria Teresa isn't there she's always like with her father yeah because clearly in the pictures they need a woman to balance the gap so like you'll do it Alexandra (laughs) in you go but yeah she just seems like an all-round fairly nice person I quite like Alexandra I knew nothing about her but she could turn out to be a horrible person what I know of her I quite like her um so then the last royal we go to is Sebastian who was born in 1992 I've I've literally written in my notes he's boring sorry um he went to Sandhurst yes he went to Sandhurst he he's not married so he hasn't had an exciting wedding that we can all pay attention to and he doesn't really do any work for the royal family because he's only 30 and you know there's no need for him so that I don't know anything about him really other than he studied at Sandhurst like they all did and I think he's in the Irish Guards now or he was yeah which is William's, or it was William's thing, is now Kate's thing. So, you know, maybe we'll see Kate and Sebastian doing some more things together. That would be nice. Um, We did see him at um, the Jordanian royal wedding. Yes, yes, he was at that. They went to Sandhurst together. Yeah, Sandhurst with Hussein. Yeah. And everyone's like, wow, Sebastian, what does this mean? It's like, it just means he knows him. He's not, we're not going to see Sebastian more. (laughs) Sebastian is just like, not here, really. Just means there's not many people who work in Luxembourg and they probably don't want to go to Jordan because, and that's enough reason for them to send Sebastian. <laughs> I've said he's boring, but one thing he does have in his favour is, is he is not married and he is my age. And <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of royals who are all like 10, 15 years older than me and are married with kids. And there's a lot that are like 18 and I would feel like a total pervert uh, if I said that they were attractive. Sebastian is one of the few that is actually around my age. And so it wouldn't be weird if I did marry him. Yeah, and you would be a princess. I would be a princess. That was always my worry about marrying to some royal families. I'd end up being like a princess their name or like a duchess. I want to be a princess. Yeah, that's always your worry about marrying him. (laughs) You have to say, I don't want to be the duchess. I want to be a princess. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When he announces his uh, engagement tomorrow, this is going to be really upsetting. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I bet he will as well. So we thought we would return to our Royal Mythbusters section, mm-hmm. which I believe we may have done once or twice. Once. <laughs> we did one Mythbuster before on um, Princess Charlene and Prince Albert's, uh, her, her, the fact that the idea that she ran away before the wedding. Yes. So it is, it's an ongoing piece, just very sporadically ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are going to look at the infamous myth that... Kate followed William to uh, St. Andrew's University to entrap him into a marriage. So, I mean, I used to do this on my blog. um, And I know that, like, when we did the Charlene and Albert one, I think there was, um, you know, maybe one person who was kind of like, why are you talking about this now when it happened so long ago? Uh, But I think there are certain stories that just get repeated all the time to the point where people accept them as truth. So we decided let's actually look at it in detail and see the truth. I think the earliest iteration I could find of this story was in 2005. So it was in the Daily Mail, but the Daily Mail was referencing an article in The Spectator. Um, So it seems like it came from The Spectator originally. And the the story basically said that Carol convinced Kate not to, Carol Middleton, Kate's mother, convinced Kate not to go to her first choice university, which was Edinburgh, but instead to go to St Andrews to essentially try and seduce Prince William and get uh, an invite to the, to being a part of the royal family. And 
so I think I'm just going to pause here and just analyze this story as it came out in 2005 and what I would have thought at the time based on what they said. And so I think it's crucial to kind of remember how the press were talking about the the Middleton family and Kate in 2005. And, you know, the press and actually people in general, we like archetypes. If you think about what was the way they were being talked about in 2005, the kind of box that they had been put into as a family was like social climbing. Um, Carol, in particular, was very much like a 21st century Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice (laughs) of like this sort of overbearing woman who was trying to get good marriages for her daughters. And like, if you looked at the article in the Daily Mail, the title literally refers to Carol as Kate's pushy mother. (laughs) Um, So it was very clear the kind of narrative that they were trying to push at this time. And I think this story, if you look at it as it was in 2005, it had no evidence. It had no detail. It didn't say like a source from Kate's university or nothing like that. It just said a source. So there was no way of being able to analyze whether or not that source was accurate or not. But I think people were willing to believe it because it was easy to box this sort of middle class family because of the classism in British society. It was easy to box them into this idea of being social climbers. So people would kind of believe it. Oh, like, of course, they're middle class. They want to rise up the ranks. Of course, they're social climbers. It's hard to explain how easy it was for everyone to just go, yeah, sounds about right. Particularly if you're not British and you don't kind of understand the way Britain views class, even on a very intrinsic level, because everyone, no matter what class you are or where you're from, has these kind of, we, we sort of subconsciously know the class barriers and anyone crossing them in any way is very, very bad. The narrative around, you know, the Wisteria sisters around these kind of empty, airheaded Kate and Pippa and their horrible pushy mother who used to be a coal miner and <laughs> was pushing them into prominence was it was everywhere and it was it was on mainstream news it was in newspapers it was on the sort of burgeoning beginnings of the internet it was you know on the street the, the article from the daily mail that quotes the spectator it kind of was like the gossip is going around that you know it, the actual article in the daily mail was part of that they have a society gossip page it was a gossip piece of like people are talking about this and there wasn't any sort of real concrete further developments of the story for another eight years and yet people still if you look at like forums and comment sections and things for those eight years people were talking about it like oh well I heard that she uh, that Carol told her that she had to go to St Andrews to seduce William and that the whole thing has been this plot that they've had so I think at this point I wouldn't really have believed it no then in 2013 there was a twist Twist in the tail. Uh, twist in the tail. So Katie Nichol, who is a royal journalist who you'll you'll have seen her because she pops up in a lot of TV shows. She doesn't really write for newspapers or anything or go on the royal beat anymore, but she she pops up as a royal expert on things. Which, I mean, that's a thing in itself because she was horrible to Kate for a very long time. Um, but Katie Nichol wrote a book about Kate. And in that book, she spoke to Kate's careers advisor from when she was at school and her house tutor, again, from when she was at school. And they went on the record as named sources in her book to confirm that Kate's first choice at university, as far as they could recall, was Edinburgh. And then after she left school, at some point, for some reason that they don't know, they don't say that they they say they don't know why, um, she 
changed her mind and went and applied to St Andrews instead of um, going to Edinburgh. So this was the new stage that came out that kind of complicated this story ever so slightly. You know, these initial stories hadn't been helped by the fact that Pippa then went to the University of Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. Name sources is rare. Two name sources is even rarer. Um, and the fact that they went on record, but they were kind of like one of them was the careers advisor. It wasn't like Kate's old ex school friend. Yeah. Because there are lots of old ex school friends. You have lots of old ex stories that are completely contradictory. But this was a professional person who worked in a school and possibly still works in a, at that point still worked in a school advising children and what you probably don't want to do and if you're in a school is break people confidentiality by going on as a named record in a book with a lie <laughs> yeah exactly so I think when that story came out you kind of have to give it fair weight because it ha- you know that, that there is a lot of weight behind having these named sources who were very well placed they these would have been the people who were just helping Kate apply to university so they probably would have seen her application and all those sorts of things and so I think then we get into trying to view it and see is it even possible and to do that we have to understand the process to apply into university <laughs> and as best as I can find out this the system that I did when I applied to university in sort of tw- uh, 2019 uh, 2009-2010 is the same as it was in sort of 1999-2000 when they would in 2001 when they would have been applying for university the timeline would have been that they would have applied to university by January 2000 they then did their exams in May to June 2000. I didn't go to school in England, but I think that's right. Yeah, May, A-levels. June, July yeah. area. Yeah, of two, sort of 2000. They had to accept a university in June. Again, this is a slight, a slight difference between England and Scotland, but in Scotland, we can get our qualifications to get into university in our second last year. So like my last year of school, it didn't matter what I got. I was already accepted to university, like it didn't, didn't matter. How it- Whereas because of the different exam systems, if you're in England and you're applying to university in um, Scotland or anywhere, really, I think um, they say we will accept you, but you have to get these grades. So in June, they would have had their offer and they would have accepted provisionally a place that would have obviously depended on them being able to get the grades, but they would have accepted those. Then they leave school in sort of July time. Um, Probably at the end of June. They normally finish school before they finish the exams and they just go back for a bit finish the exams off mid-August is when the results would have come out the exam results and that is when um it was confirmed because they they had the grades so they knew whether or not they'd got enough to get into their universities or whatever and so that is when it was confirmed publicly by the palace that William had accepted a place at St Andrews and that he would be going on a gap year before so he'd be starting the year after instead of starting in sort of September 2000 he was starting in September 2001 and um, so if you look at that timeline, you can see that by the time William announced that he was going to St Andrews, Kate would have already had to have accepted Edinburgh and she would have already left school. And that kind of does match up with what the sources have said. So, so far, it is perfectly possible that she could have accepted Edinburgh while she was still at school or still in contact with her teachers and leaving school. And then after William had announced, she could have said, actually, no, I don't want my place at Edinburgh anymore. I'm going to reapply down the line. It's a very risky choice because she'd already got into Edinburgh. And if she'd said no and then had to reapply, she might not have got into St Andrews. But it is perfectly plausible. I did spend a lot of time in the archives of 2000s newspapers, (laughs) as you do. Um, So in 
September 1999, it was rumoured that William was going to take a gap year in um, Australia and Africa. And then it was a lot of very vague rumours until the 16th of August 2000, so two days before results day, when the reports were William wants to study art history at St Andrews. And up until that point, St Andrews had pretty much never been mentioned. But what had been mentioned was the University of East Anglia, the University of Bristol and the University of Edinburgh. They were the three swirling names, as well as obviously like Oxford and Cambridge, which as always would be. Um, and then the 18th came out and they obviously were like, yeah, he's going to university. He's had these grades. He's taking a gap year. Through the timeline, you could very easily make the narrative that Kate was going to go to Edinburgh because she took that as the best guess of where William was going to go until the point where it was officially confirmed and then she pulled back. <laughs> she had to have accepted somewhere before he announced that he was going to St Andrews. So even if he was going to go to Edinburgh, she had to have accepted Edinburgh without knowing that he was definitely going to go to Edinburgh. Yeah. I feel like the most likely scenario is that she chose Edinburgh for whatever reason. And then at some point she chose to not go to Edinburgh and to go to St Andrews instead. And yes, it's possible that she chose Edinburgh initially because she thought William might be going there. But also the fact that Pippa then went to Edinburgh and the fact that the career advisors and things all seem to say that she was like set on Edinburgh and like she really wanted to go there. I don't know. It all just kind of makes me think like she did choose Edinburgh for whatever reason. And then, yeah, she chose to change that and to go to St Andrews. And so really for me, it's like, is that change something that was done because she wanted to to follow William. So I think at this point, the story is plausible. And I do believe that Kate, that they were right. Kate chose Edinburgh, then changed her mind and um, reapplied. I think the complication is the gap year element. So yeah. it was rumoured that William was going on a gap year. But again, we had no idea. It was rumoured that he was doing a lot of things. But we know that Kate went to Italy, went to Florence to study art stuff for about three months after school. And we know that she also did a Raleigh International trip, which William also did, but at a different stage, which started in January. I looked at in Raleigh, you, generally they say that you should apply at least three months before, ideally six. And we know that three months before she, the Raleigh trip started, she was probably still in Italy. Yes, she was. Yes. So that would suggest to me that she had applied to do the Raleigh international trip earlier in the year and also probably Italy because she went quite soon after she left school. So I think that would suggest that she was always planning to take a gap year. What it feels like to me is less of like a plot and more opportunism because she already had the gap year planned. She could not have known 100% that William was going to go on a gap year. And so that was a very risky decision to make. And so if she had been taking that gap year and William didn't, this whole situation wouldn't have happened because they would have been in different years. And so it couldn't have been a very good plot if they'd already made this decision that she was going to go on the gap year. It must have been just at, at most, it could have had nothing to do with William. But if it was for William, I think at most it was them going, oh, well, we're both taking a gap year. I might as well change and go to it. also what is a very good university <laughs> yeah so I once again spent a lot of time in the archives of 2000s newspapers on the 18th of August they confirmed William's gap year later on in the month they confirmed he was in Belize um, with the Welsh Guards and they said we're going to release the rest of the information in September Kate was already in August, in August in Florence by the time the gap year was announced. She was in Florence from the start of August until mid-November. 
So it must have been planned because her three months trip would have been over the start of university. Yeah. Um, we then know that on the 29th of September, William gave a press conference where he said, I'm going to spend 10 weeks in Patagonia in Chile doing these things with Raleigh International. Mm-hmm. Um, I then went onto the Raleigh International website and tried to pretend I was a 17 year old booking a trip to Costa Rica because they don't have Chile anymore. Um, and I could from now, so July, book one for October this year. But by the time they found out William was going to, Costa, uh, to Chile, it was then too late for Kate to go to the same place, to Raleigh mm-hmm. International, and there was no point going after him. So that couldn't have been linked at all. They were just no. two different people who both had the same idea. Which all middle class children do. I did. I went to Borneo on my expedition. So, you know. <laughs> but we have somehow very strict timelines for both of their gap yeah. years. Yeah. But what we also know is that on the date of their exam result, they both deferred a place, which means at that moment they had both accepted a place that they deferred for a year they didn't apply the next year so like at that point they both knew they were going to university they were both on a lovely gap year and they both had a similar gap year experience like they both done something that was like into their fields like William had done the military and Kate had done art they both did exactly the same trip to Chile but just at different points and then he'd gone off to Africa to work on farms and she'd gone on boats which we know she likes like it was perfectly them <laughs> So it's not possible that Carol Middleton was sitting down with her like 10 year old daughter going, right, this is your trajectory for how we are going to get you to a place where you can meet Prince William. That is not something that could have happened. What happened at most was they saw that William was going to St Andrews. They thought that's a good university, good history of art department. You've got the grades to be able to get in. You're already going on a gap year like he is. So why not? So so that's what I think of that story anyway, but is, is kind of that. I think it's I think it's possible, but I don't think that it's um, this elaborate plot. And but I think like even if she did change for William, William and Kate did not meet and fall in love because she was a student at St Andrews, because there were thousands of students at St Andrews. <laughs> and when it was announced that William was going, uh, applications to St Andrews increased by forty four percent. Like I remember, even when I started in uh, two thousand ten, it must have been. Um, so we all got. I know this is different to some places in the US, but we all got like our own bedroom. I, there were stories about how like they had to divide bedrooms into two and add sort of roommates in because there were so many people who'd applied um, to go to St Andrews after William had been announced because all of these girls wanted to meet William. So if Kate did change her course to go to to meet William at St Andrews, she was one of thousands of women who did this. <laughs> and I can assure you of that. And even when I was at St Andrews, everybody is like Kate. Like they're all, there's so many posh English privately educated women who wear, uh, who at the time would be wearing gilets and um, Ugg boots like Kate. There were so, so many of them. They met not because she was a student at St Andrews, but because they were on the same course. They were in the same halls. They had the same interests. And when you look at those things, I mean, Kate did art at A-level and then she went straight to do to study art in Florence in Italy. So it was quite clear that, I mean, I don't know 100% that she applied to art at, at Edinburgh. I'm assuming she did. But either way, it was quite obvious that she was already interested in history of art. And I think it was William who was perhaps the surprise that he was going to go into history of art because that's not something I ever would have put him towards also I think this was the same when I as when I was at university but when I was applying at St Andrews you say if you want like catered or self-catered or uh, you can give your preferences but they allocate you halls and um, so 
Kate could have said she preferred so something, but Williams Halls, as far as I were, I'm aware, hadn't been confirmed. And um, there's no way that Kate could have bought her way into having a place at uh, Sally's, which is the halls that William was at. And then things like sports, we know she was interested in all of that from childhood. So no matter what plot Carol had, it, <laughs> the, like she couldn't have plotted to get Kate into the same halls as him. She couldn't have plotted to get Kate onto the same course as him. Yeah, it's always the course one that gets me because like I said, it's very likely Kate was always going for art history or history of art. But William was such a random, he didn't even stick with it. He was <laughs> out of art history within like a term. Like, could you imagine if you'd really want to, like Kate had been said, like, I really want to do psychology. And they're like, it's history of art. William's doing history of art, you're doing history of art. And then he quit within like a term. Yeah, yeah. Like, Mom. yeah and then like my, my argument with this whole following William thing, not like following him, but like following William to entrap him into a marriage that always gets me, is that in September 2001, Kate had a steady boyfriend. She did, yes. She was happily in a relationship. And whether or not Carol was desperately behind the scenes going, please break up so you can marry with don't know. But Kate was probably not. She was probably not hoping to break up with her boyfriend. But I think a lot of it comes back to this kind of misogynic, misogynistic argument that we talked about, you know, when the original stories came out in sort of 2005. This idea that, and I don't think it does favours to men either, to be honest, this idea that men are so stupid that they can be trapped by these evil harlots who are only in it to sort of advance themselves. Because he's richer and more powerful, she's sort of like go dating up by being with him. When she could have found a billionaire and lived in privacy in the middle of the countryside and had a much easier life. She could have been Pippa, who's married to a billionaire and just floats around doing nothing. Like that would have been the dream. It's, I, I, to a degree, do we not all do this? I have a very handsome neighbour for people who don't follow me on Tumblr. I have a very handsome neighbour. I So we have a shared garden, shared by like all the houses on the street. It's really massive. And um, I like the garden anyway, and the sunshine has been lovely. So I've been gone out, going out into the garden. But I definitely choose my seat that I sat, or for the first few weeks anyway, I definitely chose the seat that I sat in because it was right next to his window. And I thought maybe he'll see me out in the garden and then he'll come out into the garden to sit with me. Like, I think it's quite normal that if you find out you're attracted to somebody, you try and do something that puts you in the vicinity of that person so you might be able to talk to them. That's not like, a, I'm not plotting to seduce a man. You know, I'm not like trying to trap him into some sort of marriage. So it doesn't necessarily have to be this like nefarious evil plot. It could just be, he's he was young and attractive and Kate liked the same things as him and was young and attractive. And so she wanted to be around him and it worked out. You know, it, I, I don't think it's that different from what any of us do when we're attracted to people. It's yeah. such an, even like for friends like it's such a normal yeah. thing to do to be like oh this person I quite like my good friend really likes this other thing I'm going to go and learn about it you're not like I'm going to manipulate them into thinking I've always liked this thing too <laughs> it's it's just so normal marrying William must have been so incredibly hard for Kate like that was the whole thing about them waiting like 10 years to get engaged because there's not a massive age gap between Kate and Pippa and of the two of them from what we've heard from them and from their friends, Pippa is more suited to the public life than Kate is. She's always, you know, Kate is weird and quirky and hates public speaking. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, that is like the worst possible combination. Like, if you were going to trick one of your children into growing up and marrying an eligible bachelor who happens to be the heir to the throne, you'd go, yeah, I'm going for Pippa here. Sorry, Kate, yeah. you can you marry whoever. Pippa, we're training you. My argument was always, 
not that it didn't happen but that Carol if it was if it was a really planned one Carol chose the wrong sister (laughs) to Mm. trick into this relationship well yeah I mean the thing is even if it was a plot she did a great job (laughs) great but it worked yeah that's what I I think you know like it doesn't this is ultimately like we've gone through this story and whether it's likely to be true or not or whether it's possible but like even if it is true doesn't change how I feel about Kate at all because all it shows is she is determined and successful <laughs> um, because she got him. <laughs> yeah, they say about Megan as well of like she plotted to get Harry, and it's like, well, if she did, she did a great job. Good kudos. <laughs> um, yeah. It would be different. It might be different if Kate had chosen to go to a terrible university and ruin her life chances so that she could be close to William. But she went to St Andrews, and you know she had so many opportunities to like speak to the press and make loads of money, and she didn't do that. So nobody has been, even if it was a plot originally, nobody has been hurt by it because. You do a plot to trap someone doesn't lead to a 20 year relationship more than happy marriage and three children. So, even if it was a plot, even if it was this dastardly thing that Carol Middleton was sitting in a, a room somewhere plotting it all out, who cares? Because they're happy and they're together and they do a good job and you know they seem to genuinely love each other. Yeah, it, it was like I was gonna say earlier, like, no one's benefited, but they've both benefited, William yeah. and Kate. Because they're happy and healthy and they are living their best life with a beautiful little family and they get on well and they have friends and they spend all their time with the Middletons. If they were that fussed, the Middletons would be spending all their time at Buckingham Palace. Like, it's not like you're like, oh, where's the king? And we can't come around, he's hosting Carol for tea again. Like, William is spending his entire life mowing the lawn in Bucklebury. Like, that's his (laughs) dream to, you know, be a farmer and live a little village country life he just happens to be the future king yeah so exactly. if anything this was a plot from William to entrap this random woman yeah. who lived a middle class life yeah i guess that a new rumor yeah. <laughs> well i always think back to i we don't know if it's definitely true but we there's all that that story that goes around that somebody said to kate um you're so lucky to be going out with william and she responded he's lucky to be going out with me and I've always thought, I've always hoped that was true because I think people underestimate Kate. She she is the she's got a backbone of steel. She's the much more sensible one when it comes to like public decisions. She sticks to her guns and it works out for her in the end most of the time. She's more much more shrewd than people give her credit for. And I just like this idea that like everybody around her thought that she was some sort of social climbing person who kind of um was just hanging around for William and that was her only goal in life. But actually, from her perspective, she was the catch in the relationship because he had all this stuff attached to him that she didn't have. And uh, it was much harder to date him than it was for him to date her. So in her mind, actually, it wasn't a plot to try and snare William. She was the catch and she was the one who was desirable, the most desirable out of the two of them. And I've always hoped that that story is true. That was a nice note to end on. That is all we have got for this week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, our deep dive into Luxembourg in particular. Please rate us five stars on all podcast directories and feel free to listen to any of our recent episodes. We have a whole episode about what royals do in the summer, which you can watch while the royals are, or listen to. Chateau de Cakes. A cracking name, that one. Um, But until the next time, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.